This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today on the podcast, I have Stephen Roach, and I, I can't begin to tell you what a masterclass in both economics and investing this was. Uh, you should be familiar with Roach. He was the chief economist at Morgan Stanley for 21 years. He was there for over three decades before he moved on to becoming uh, chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. This was just a tour de force discussion on everything from the role of the Federal Reserve to the way we measure productivity to how markets should impact your thinking about everything from economics to valuation and investing. Uh, absolutely, uh, I, I can't say enough. I'm gushing. I expect you're going to find this to be just a, a 90 minutes that are going to fly by. So rather than have me continue to babble, let me just jump right into it. Without any further ado, our conversation with Yale and Morgan Stanley's Stephen Roach. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Stephen Roach. You probably know him from his years as the chief economist for Morgan Stanley. A quick background on on Mr. Roach, Professor Roach, Dr. Roach. Can I call you Dr. Roach? Call me anything you want, Barry. All righty. And um, he began his career as a research fellow at the Brookings Institute before becoming a researcher for the Federal Reserve where he worked for seven years. Uh, not only was he chief economist at Morgan Stanley, he eventually rose to the title of chairman Morgan Stanley Asia, where he was for five years. Uh, he's written a number of books, uh, Unbalanced Codependency of America and China, as well as The Next Asia, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Globalization. He is presently a senior lecturer at the Yale School of Management and a senior fellow at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Stephen Roach, welcome to Bloomberg. Pleasure to be with you. So I was excited to talk to you for so many reasons. Your, your background is tremendous. And you were at Morgan Stanley for 30 years, including a huge swath of that as the chief economist. And you worked with a number of legendary people uh, before becoming a legend yourself, you worked with Byron Wien as well as Barton Biggs. What was it like during that era? Actually, Barry, you know, those are the, as far as I'm concerned, the, that, that was the golden age of Wall Street macro research. Mm -hmm. uh, we really had an extraordinary period, not just in the economy and in the markets, but in building... Um, Morgan Stanley, I think, into the preeminent leader in um, sort of macro analysis of markets uh, and economies. And uh, Byron, Barton, and I sort of spearheaded that. Uh, they did it from the market strategy point of view. Um, I did it from the economics point of view. Barton, of course, straddled both the, the market and the economic realm because he always had some really, uh, uh, you know, quite penetrating and deep insights into the, uh, the macro underpinnings of the markets that he was following. And, um, you know, and Byron had his own knack of looking at uh, the market through the lens of his out of consensus 10 surprises. And, and, and we, we all worked very, very closely together. We traveled the world together. 
Uh, we provoked each other. We debated each other. Um, every once in a while, we even agreed with each other. Uh, but most of all, we had fun. Uh, it was an extraordinary period. The, the bulk of this period was the 1980s and 1990s. It was a huge boom going on, both in the bond market and the stock market. How does that era of prosperity impact the growth of a firm, a little unknown firm like Morgan Stanley? Well, you know, Morgan Stanley was historically, you know, mainly an investment banking firm that, um, you know, in the 1970s made a commitment to really uh, go into a broad-based um, institutional origination and distribution business, adding uh, equities. Um, then uh, when I came in the early 80s, uh, adding uh, government securities, becoming a primary dealer, and then really starting to build out a, um, uh, a full-blown fixed income uh, uh, business. And so Morgan Stanley wanted to ride the wave of the institutionalization and the internationalization uh, of the, the global securities business. And really, uh, I think it was one of the first firms to successfully transition, transform itself from a narrow uh, preeminent investment bank into a broad-based international securities firm. So given how everything has become so balkanized, you have boutiques rising, you have hedge funds and private equity and venture capital, would it be possible in the modern era for that same story to take place? Could another Morgan Stanley rise, or is that just a bygone era and we're not going to see that sort of huge conglomerate coming to the fore again? It's hard to say. I mean, um, you know, the... the Environment has changed from a macroeconomic perspective. I mean, back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when this whole magic began, you know, we had double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates. And, and once we put policies in place to address that, then, you know, we, we began a you know, extraordinary 25-year uh, uh, bull market with interest rates going one way. That journey is, is complete. And, and now, you know, there's a big debate as to whether or not you know, it's going to go the other way. I'm suspicious of that. But to, to get that kind of break from the markets and then to get the, the same type of break from the globalization uh, of, of, of uh, cross-border capital flows and the development of a whole new complex of, uh, of products that are addressed to, um, uh, to deal with these twin forces of disinflation and globalization, I, I don't think you can recapture that. But that doesn't mean some other combination couldn't, uh, you know, come up and, and, and uh, offer a different business model that um, is potentially just as attractive as the one that Morgan Stanley presented uh, in the early 1980s. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, Yale lecturer and former Morgan Stanley chief economist, Stephen Roach. And we were just talking about uh, the FOMC and the most recent uh, end of zero interest rate policy and the beginning of what some people have been calling liftoff. Uh, let me let me ask a, a very broad question. So unemployment since the crisis has been cut in half. We were 10%. We're now more or less at 5%. CPI is barely 2%. So the question is, what have the Fed been waiting for? Well, the Fed, I think, harbors the mistaken belief that um, – uh, monetary policy, whether it's traditional using um, uh, the federal funds rate or non-traditional using quantitative easing, holds the key to economic recovery, holds the key to controlling inflation. 
uh, holds the key to controlling uh, uh, risk-taking and, and, and driving uh, global economic activity. I think, um, you know, a lot of those uh, assumptions probably are close to being right, but just as many, if not more of them, are, are, are really wrong. So let me push back on you on that a little bit, because between Ben Bernanke's The Courage to Act, his, his recent book, and the circuit he's been doing talking about it, one of the things he has said is, we didn't want to be as aggressive as we were, but we had no choice since Congress was paralyzed, there was an austerity movement, and the traditional post-recession Keynesian stimulus was not available. Well, Do you, you know, buy that, or look, what, what do you he's, think about that? You know, he's talking his book literally and figu- <laughs> figuratively. Yes. Um, and, you know, he has an uncanny knack for starting history when it's most convenient for him mm-hmm. to explain um, uh, the efficacy of uh, uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, Rescue Act during the crisis. What he fails to really uh, uh, own up to, and Greenspan is the same way, is the critical role the Fed played in getting us into this mess. Um, I commend Ben Bernanke for his heroic actions in the depth of a crisis. But by advocating a monetary policy that was extraordinarily easy Mm -hmm. um, in the pre-crisis years, by steadfastly maintaining as an academic and then as a central banker that monetary policy should play no role whatsoever in containing or controlling asset or credit bubbles, uh, I think he led us down a path that almost blew up the system. And so what I want from a central banker is a much more disciplined approach to focusing on financial stability rather than just targeting an inflation rate, which never seems to budge and which is consistently below the Fed's uh, uh, expectations and has been so for close to eight years now. So you mentioned Greenspan. Let, let's talk about the central banker formerly known as the maestro. His reputation took a giant hit following the crisis, deservedly so or not? Yeah, absolutely so. I think, um, uh, again, he, he was sort of a, uh, you know, had a one-way view of market disruptions, the so-called Greenspan put. Whenever the markets got into trouble, just, you know, um, turn on the fire hose and, and, and inject more liquidity and let it slosh around and the system will take care of itself. And that works brilliantly until one day it doesn't. Uh, and that doesn't uh, was when, um, you know, there was this catastrophic uh, near collapse of the system in, in the fall of uh, 1998 sparked by Lehman Brothers. Greenspan never believed that we could have uh, s- systemic risk coming from any bubble, whether it was a dot-com bubble, whether it was the housing bubble, whether it was a credit bubble. He all believed that these were testaments to the Oh, you know, the, the brilliance of, um, you know, the, the, the market-based system consistent with his, uh, you know, Ayn uh, uh, Rand uh, libertarian uh, view of, of the world that markets always know best and central banks should never interfere with the wisdom and brilliance of markets. Which is sort of bizarre because I, I just want to clarify something. So 2008 Lehman Brothers, 1998 long-term capital management. Um, uh, the fascinating thing about Greenspan is Here's a guy who who is proselytizing, let the market sort it out, hands for off, limit the amount of regulation we had, yet every time there was a twitch, he was there to intervene in the markets. It seems somewhat um, hypocritical. Well, I think hypocritical is 
putting it uh, a little too kindly. I think. <laughs> I think. I was afraid you were going to say that's too strong a word. No, I think. I think that um, what what the Fed did, and and I, I don't want to single out Alan Greenspan because we had a system, Barry, that would have created another Alan Greenspan if 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 he wasn't around. Mm-hmm. We were struggling with economic growth uh, as a nation. Uh, really beginning in the 1970s. Uh, and um, then we had, you know, devastating high inflation. Paul Volcker came in and and really broke the back of that inflation. But, you know, the economy was still laboring under a lot of pressures, especially in, in its ability to generate income for average American or middle-class workers. And so the central bank, under the guidance of Alan Greenspan for 18 and a half years, relied much more on financial engineering to create asset bubbles to generate so-called extra purchasing power mm-hmm. to grow the economy beyond the fundamentals of the earnings that we were able to squeeze uh, out of hard work um, and productivity-related uh, pay increases. And this disconnect between the, um, the underlying income generation that, that comes from employment and the income that could be extracted from asset and credit bubbles led us down, um, uh, I think, a very treacherous path. And, you know, I, I think that's the, 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 the dilemma that Janet Yellen faces today is how to uh, put the economy back on a sounder basis, more su- supported by the fundamentals of wage uh, and labor income generation than by the excesses of asset appreciation. So so we had the dot-com bubble in 2000. We had the housing and credit bubble in 0506. We had a subsequent commodities boom and bust. Are we in, uh, are we at risk at another bubble now, or are things on the right track, and part of that comes from the, the slow 2 2.5% growth? No, I, like, I think that um, uh, there's, there, there's risks that we're going to uh, end up with another type of... Um, uh, financial accident. Uh, we, you know, we're still at a, a period, historically uh, unprecedented period uh, of rock bottom interest rates. I mean, you know, big deal. Uh, you know, the federal funds rates now at 25 uh, basis points. But not only have we taken interest rates to the so-called zero bound, uh, and not just in the U.S. but in you know Europe uh, and uh, Japan. But the balance sheets of central banks are so swollen that there continues to be a lot of excess liquidity sloshing around the world, and that's where the risk lies in terms of the next uh, potential crisis. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Stephen Roach. He was the chief economist at Morgan Stanley, where he toiled for more than 30 years before becoming chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He is currently a lecturer at Yale University. And earlier we were talking about the impact of the Fed and some of the bigger mistakes that Alan Greenspan and other Fed uh, members had made. Uh, Why is it, uh, I'll start you out with a big one, why is it that the Fed specifically and most of the world's economists missed that big crisis in 08-09? How come no one really saw it coming in advance? Well, I think... uh it's 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 like an, how come investors you know don't see bear markets when when a trend is is spectacularly in favor of your position whether it's an investor uh, or a policymaker you know you don't want to ever shout be the one who shouts there's a fire in the room you you overstay your welcome the federal reserve 
was was steeped in the hubris of what it loudly proclaimed as the great moderation. Mm -hmm. They had uh, cracked the back of inflation. They had gotten the economy to perform very well. Uh, Unemployment was low. And sure, you know, asset markets were uh, frothy in their view, but this wasn't a big, big risk. After all, as Greenspan argued, we can't have a nationwide housing bubble. We could have problems in Las Vegas or Florida, but not for the country as a whole. We can't have a, a, a dot-com bubble, he argued earlier. I mean, after all, these are new companies that are going to drive us to a new frontier on, on productivity. And let's not be critical of subprime mortgages, he argued, because that's providing housing finance to a swath of the population that needed shelter. And so, you know, it went on and on and on. The music just kept playing, uh, and um, nobody wanted to be left uh, uh, holding the bag until they realized suddenly that maybe it wasn't quite as pretty as they thought. And it was too late by then, Barry, just so too late. let me push back a little bit because we know that investors, from a psychological standpoint, they have a vested interest in bull markets continuing, and they always overstay their welcome, and they never want to believe that markets go up and down. But the Fed are supposed to be the professional watchmen who are there for, amongst other things, to look for these aberrations and to identify when policy is too loose or too tight and is going to cause a problem. For the Fed to behave like any mom-and-pop investor who makes bad decisions based on a a variety of behavioral errors seems like they really weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Well, you know, I hate to um, uh, disagree with you on that, but but I think think, uh, we ended up, despite the fact that we extol the virtues of the Fed as being politically independent, they're not politically independent. They're part of the body politic that wants Mm -hmm. to squeeze more growth out of the system than the system can deliver on the basis of fundamentals. And so, you know, if you read... That alone seems very reckless. Well, Basically, it's like driving a car that shouldn't go more than 100 miles an hour. At 150, you're going to run into trouble. But they were part of the Washington consensus that Mm -hmm. really was disturbed by the um, uh, the lack of fundamentally supported economic growth. So if a central bank could deliver growth beyond the fundamentals uh, by excess liquidity, low interest rates, asset and credit bubbles, who 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 was the, the Congress uh, to be critical of that? And Greenspan ultimately ended up, you know, in his uh, uh, memoirs, writing toward the very end, buried in the back, uh, that he says, I regret to say that the political independence of the Fed is not carved in stone, admitting mm-hmm. that you know he was very much a part uh, of the political process that guided and shaped uh, uh, Congress, the president, uh, and the so-called tough-minded independent central bank. As I look back on America's central bank, um, and I started my career there, as you indicated in the intro, um, I regret to say I only see one independent uh, chairman, and that was uh, uh, politically independent chairman, that was Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker. Yeah, no, none better. Uh, so the first rule of economics I learned is there's no free lunch. Are you suggesting the Fed policy for the better part of three or four decades has been a free lunch policy? Well, yeah, I think that's not a, a, a bad image. I mean, again, if you have a central bank that at the first sign of trouble in the market is going to uh, flush the system with liquidity, as the so-called Greenspan put repeatedly did, maybe it's not a free lunch, but it's certainly a highly subsidized uh, uh, long-standing banquet meal. 
All right, so in our last minute of this segment, rather than me being critical on about the Fed and economists, tell me what is it that economists do right but don't get enough credit for? Well, I, I think economists are good uh, at um, having a disciplined analytical thought process to identify the tensions that build in a system that want to take a system that moves away from uh, stability or equilibrium into a, um, uh, a place that needs a correction. And so I, when I was doing it on Wall Street, I always focused on these disequilibrium uh, uh, tensions and how they might be resolved through a correction in the economy uh, or policy. And every once in a while, uh, I'd even wander, usually mistakenly, into the realm of how they'd be corrected by markets. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Stephen Roach. He is a professor at Yale, uh, former chief strategist, chief economist, actually, at Morgan Stanley, uh, where he worked for 30 years, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Let's talk a little bit about Asia, because long ahead of the curve, you decided that Asia was a place where global growth was going to come from, and then essentially set up uh, Morgan Stanley's... Uh, shop up there. How did that whole thing come about? Well, Barry, I was running Morgan Stanley's uh, global economics team, um, you know, beginning in the early 1990s. And um, we had a great team. Uh, actually, we were ranked the number one global team by uh, II, Institutional Investor. And then along came the Asian financial crisis, 97, 98. Uh, and our forecast was in shambles. The number one ranked team. We had the worst forecast of anybody <laughs> on Wall Street. So this was a great source of personal humiliation to me. Mm -hmm. So I'd been to China, you know, a few times. I had a hunch that China might hold the key to the end game of this crisis. And right around the middle of 97, when the, the Thai bot was devalued, uh, I started going to China once every other month to, to figure out if China would be the next shoe to fall, as many believe. And um, it quickly became evident to me that China was cut from a very different cloth. And I started doing a lot of research uh, on China then, I hired a brilliant young uh, economist, Andy Shea, sure. uh, to uh, analyze um, uh, China. But Andy was um, uh, pretty green at that point and, and, and really had a hard time um, coming up with the types of answers that I thought would be helpful to our team. So I, I went off on my own, got hooked on China, uh, and uh, never turned back. And, and wrote, I remember, uh, my first public article in the Financial Times – um, in um, uh, probably the spring of 1998, that not only would China put a floor on the crisis, but it would emerge from the, uh, uh, the Asian financial crisis as the new leader of the region, quickly supplanting Japan. And, uh, you know, more. By the way, not a very controversial statement today. No, but, but back, back in 98, that was a radical shift, wasn't it? Well, it, 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 it got me uh, sort of excommunicated from Morgan Stanley's. <laughs> Uh, Japanese-centric institutional client base in Asia. And, you know, my uh, Chinese uh, relationships that I was developing were actually embarrassed by it. They, they, really? they thought that, uh, that I was going a little bit too far. But, you know, um, it always helps, you know, in, in, whether it's Wall Street or Hollywood, to be in the right place at the right time. And China took off mm -hmm. uh, uh, right after that Asian financial crisis. Hasn't looked back since then until right about now when the growth rate uh, is slowing. This is causing uh, a big debate. Japan has struggled. Uh, two and a half lost decades later is, is, is still going nowhere, despite the hype and promise 
of the so-called uh, Abenomics uh, uh, policy proposals. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've been deeply involved in written books and now teach classes at Yale on, uh, on Asia, on China, on the lessons of Japan uh, ever since. And it's really been a very rewarding part of my own personal journey. And you lived in China for three plus years. What was that experience like? Well, I was the chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. The office was in Hong Kong, uh, where I had an apartment that I spent about one day a week at. <laughs> uh, I was on the road constantly. I spent about half my time uh, in the mainland, and it enabled me to deepen my connections to uh, officials, um, uh, business leaders, uh, academics uh, in China. I traveled all over uh, the country. Unlike, what, what cities did you go to in China? Well, you know, or the, what are the standouts? I mean, I know you're going to say uh, Beijing. Well, yeah, I, I, I did the usuals: Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Dalian, uh, Nanjing. Um, spent a lot of time in Chongqing. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the biggest uh, urban city uh, in 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 the world. Uh, Xi'an, uh, you name it. Uh, Changsha, uh, Chengdu. See the pandas there, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know China is um, uh, more than just Beijing uh, and uh, Shanghai. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot that's going on uh, outside of uh, this thriving uh, coastal region of the country that you really have to know. And 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 I was privileged to be uh, able to see a lot of that. Did Did you pick up any Mandarin, or can you get by on English everywhere? I, I studied Mandarin. I had tutors um, and, um, you know, a couple of things along the way told me that um, I had no reason to do that. Uh, I tried out my Mandarin a few times in meetings with senior officials that I was very uh, uh, close to. And they would usually stop me and say, you know, do us a favor. Uh, we understand you <laughs> stay, a lot better. Stick to English. And then the final um, uh, um uh, embarrassment came when I was invited actually to give a commencement st- a speech at Nanjing University, mm-hmm. one of China's leading universities. And I knew enough not to try to do the speech in Mandarin, but I wanted to close with a, a, a brilliant, astute uh, a Chinese proverb and in, in, in delivered in Mandarin. Uh, and I'm pretty comfortable at public speaking. Uh, and I'd rehearsed this line maybe 75 times and I'd had a tutor to help me with the tones. Mm-hmm. And so it came time to just read it. All I was going to do was read it and I look up and I see thousands of students in caps and gowns and I forgot everything I had learned. And so I did it, you know, uh, phonetically and no one blinked. And to this day, I'm, I'm convinced that no one knew I was even speaking in Chinese at the time. So that's when I said, OK, I'm done. I, I don't uh, I don't I, uh, no, and, no more Mandarin. And pretty much you could get get by with English just about anywhere you, you in Asia. You can get by with it, but, you know, um, quite honestly, if I have a regret, you know, that that is a regret of not... Not learning Mandarin earlier. Not being able from time to time to, you know, to, to speak comfortably in the language of, of my host country. I think that's, that, that, that's something I always tell young people when they're thinking about their own career choices. So uh, a question that I've always been fascinated by anytime I, I speak with someone who's lived overseas for a while... Uh, what is it that we in the U.S. misunderstand most about China, and then vice versa? What are what misconceptions do the Chinese have about Americans that are, seem to be long lasting? Well, it's a great question, and um, uh, you know the first part of it um, is is something that really hit me over the head when I read a book actually in 19, published in 1998 by now retired Yale professor Jonathan Spence, 
called The Chan's Great Continent, where he examined forensically uh, Western views of China going back uh, to uh, Marco Polo's 13th century journals right through Nixon and Kissinger. And the bottom line of, of Spence's um, you know, extraordinary work was that the West, especially those of us in the U.S., would always see China through the same lens that we saw ourselves rather than through the experiences uh, of, through, from the Chinese perspective. Example being Marco Polo's journals uh, in the um, 13th century uh, never once mentioned that the Chinese women bound their feet mm-hmm. and re- referred constantly to the canals that re- went through ancient Peking when in fact there were no canals in ancient Peking. The can- canals were in his native Venice. And on and on through um, uh, more uh, current uh, historical figures, you know, Nixon uh, sitting down with, with Mao Zedong and saying, oh, we're both from small towns. You know, you're from Changsha, I'm from Yorba Linda. We have a lot in common, <laughs> and maybe not, you know. Uh, and so when we look today back at China through the lens of some of our debt issues uh, or housing bubbles, you know, we're looking to think that China's got the same types of problems that we have, and they don't. They're, they're, it's a very different um, uh, framework and set of issues that they're grappling with in their system at a very different stage of economic development. So, so let's talk about that for a second. They have a billion seven people, many of whom have... A billion come, four. billion four, many of whom are coming from a, a very ag- agrarian lifestyle, small towns, farming villages, moving all these people to a industrialized um, economy, moving them into these cities. You know, 60 Minutes did that big piece on the ghost cities. But are those but ghost that's a, cities but that's an example. preparation for changes coming forward? That's a complete example of, of what I just said. We look at unoccupied housing uh, as a bubble mm-hmm. waiting to burst. The first ghost city that I saw in China was in the second half of the 1990s, a place called Shanghai Pudong. It was the largest urban development in the history of the world at the time. Mm-hmm. It's now fully occupied by five and a half million people. China bearing, that's, a, that's like a Manhattan practically. Almost. Built from Chi- scratch. China moves between 15 and 20 million people a year from the countryside to the city. That's two New York cities a year. Wow. Uh, and so they, they don't wait uh, to, to build shelter and infrastructure uh, for these people after they've arrived, which is the sort of the, mo- the urbanization model of India, which leads to urban squalor. Sure. But they build in anticipation of it. And sure, they will make mistakes. They will uh, build in areas that ultimately will um, uh, not be as fully occupied as they would like. But in large part, their high investment economy is built to anticipate the future subsequent flow of rural urban migration, which is going to be, you know, enormous continuing through 2025, 2030. We've been speaking with Stephen Roach. He is the former chief economist for Morgan Stanley, currently a lecturer at Yale. If you would like to hear or see more writings of of Professor Roach, where can people find uh, your work other than Barnes & Noble and Amazon? Well, I do write a regular um, column that's uh, available on the Project Syndicate website monthly that is distributed to... um, uh, newspapers all over the world in multiple languages. So you can check me out on the Project Syndicate website as well as your um, your local uh, book dealer.
If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and hang out and check out our podcast extras where the tape keeps rolling and we continue discussing uh, all these weighty matters. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast, or for those of you who haven't left or are on treadmills and cars, thanks for hanging around. Before I forget, Stephen, let me thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your time. So far, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I know it's going to continue to be fascinating. Well, you say so far. I mean, you're, so you're, far. you're hedging your bets here. Um, a little bit. Hey, yeah. listen, nothing wrong, wrong with a little hedge every now yeah, and then. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, but I, I'm pretty confident it's going to continue to be outstanding. It's really dependent on me not messing up. You, I'm confident in. So we missed, there's so many questions I wanted to get to and I, I didn't have a, uh, a, a, a chance to. Let's talk a little bit about the economy in general. Uh, what is the state of the labor market in the United States? And I'm going to tee that up by saying unemployment at 5.1%, depending on whose numbers, uh, where you date uh, the data we've created, somewhere between 9 and 11 million new jobs since the end of the Great Recession, GDP at 2, 2.5%, housing off its lows. What's wrong with the U.S. economy? Well, yeah, I don't believe the, um, the official labor market statistics. Um, if the In what way? In what way well, do you— Well, if the unemployment rate is, is, is actually as low— uh, as um, the uh, the official sort of five percent reading indicates, yeah, I believe in supply and demand. There mm-hmm. there should be some wage inflation by now, um, and we've seen none, zero. And so there's there's a lot of um, suspicious trends in things like uh, the employment to population ratio, which is barely up off the bottom, the labor right. force participation rate. Uh, which is still near. That's been falling uh, for a while, though. Hasn't well, it's it been? been falling um, uh, dramatically uh, since the crisis, and I, I don't think that's a, an accident. Uh, a lot of serious academic work says that oh, this is just a coincidence. It's occurred, um, uh, reflecting you know the, the demography of, um, of of aging workers who are now reaching the point in their lives where they. They are just opting out of the labor force. I don't think these things happen by coincidence, sparked by a crisis. So I think the the long term job issues, um, very structural in nature. Meaning, when you say structural, automation, globalization, things like that. Yeah, or- and and reflecting the fact that the demand, the demand side of the system, especially consumer demand, um, is on an uh, extraordinarily uh, a weak trajectory. So without demand, um, and, and, and the numbers are pretty clear, we've had um, now uh, seven and a half years of growth in real consumer spending, uh, which is 70% of the economy. Um, the, the, the annualized average adjusted for inflation is 1.4%. Uh, and you know the pre-crisis trend is a number slightly north of, of, of 3%. And if you back out automobiles, which are booming, it's significantly worse than that. Well, Cheap you know, credit. Th- this is a seven and a half year average. So, you know, I think I don't want to back anything out of it. I just want to take the numbers it stands. Mm-hmm. Consumer demand is weak. And so when people forecast the future with an aim toward hiring or investing in plant and equipment, they look at the past as a guide to where we're headed. Uh, and they're going, wait a second, in a slow demand environment, why am I going to hire? 
why am I going to expand my uh, productive uh, facilities? And uh, so this, you know, this sluggish uh, labor market is very much uh, a byproduct of the demand destruction that occurred and is still with us in the aftermath of this horrific crisis. So that goes back to something we just barely touched upon during the broadcast portion, which is the usual Keynesian stimulus that typically follows a recession was pretty much absent. And I know I'm going to get emails about the uh, American Recovery Act and it was $800 million, but really two-thirds of that was temporary tax cuts and temporary extension of um, unemployment policies. We didn't really get the trillion dollar stimulus that that we've seen in prior recessions. Is that a culprit in this soft recovery? Well, it's a big debate, as you say, and I think um, it's, it's appropriate to raise that question. I, I think, though, that um, it, it, it's really uh, an oversimplification to say that, you know, if we had just done, you know, what, say, Paul Krugman said, everything mm-hmm. would be fine. Um, we went through a Japanese-style balance sheet recession mm-hmm. uh, where um, American homeowners, whether they were subprime or prime or not, levered their biggest asset and used the proceeds of that bet to fund both current consumption and saving. And they made, in general, a huge mistake. And so when that asset went underwater relative to the liabilities, they were stuck with a huge hole in their balance sheet and they needed to pay down debt and rebuild their saving. And all the infrastructure spending in the world would not have repaired uh, these bruised and battered balance sheets. We needed policies aimed at taking the excess debt off the system uh, and providing some um, long-term incentives for individuals to save. And instead, we got the opposite, zero interest rates. There's no incentive to save. So, and debt so forgiveness is a politically you know, incorrect um, uh, uh, um, argument. So, so right now we have, still seven years later, we have a lot of homeowners still in the process of deleveraging. That accounts for a big chunk of the uh, lack of consumer spending yep. that you referred to. I have two questions for you. The first is, and you, you alluded to, d- debt forgiveness isn't likely to work. What could the government have done or, or the Federal Reserve had done to address that. And, and the second part of that is really about the new normal. So, so let's start with the first half. What could have been done about all this massive debt held on the books of, of individuals and uh, homeowners in particular in order to get them back on a, a normal footing? Well, you know, t- two things I would say um, uh, that, that are to that point. Number one, uh, what we learn from Japan is really relevant to um, the, the, the U.S. consumer. Um, Japanese corporates were kept on artificial life support right. uh, when they should have been allowed to go under, and that clogged the system. And so the zombies, the walking dead, uh, ended up creating massive congestion throughout the entire system of viable companies as well as failed companies. We've had a similar zombie congestion in the United States where the homeowners were underwater. That excess um, uh, uh, supply of of homes and overhang of debt created uh, price destruction for all the homeowners in general. So we had a nationwide 
collapse in our housing market sparked by one small piece of it, uh, the subprime piece. Secondly, I reject the notion that we could not have dealt uh, with, with debt forgiveness. We just needed a, a more reasonable approach where everybody's skin was in the game, that the government provided some subsidy to um, uh, overextended Americans, that banks took write-offs. They didn't want to do that because it would hurt their earnings. Sure. Uh, and um, that, that individuals would accept some responsibility for their own reckless borrowing by moving from non-recourse to recourse lending. So if you reset their mortgage at a market clearing rate and they, and they uh, fail to make good on that payment, they wouldn't just lose the house, they'd lose all their other assets. So we needed a, you know, a, a political consensus to go about uh, addressing this excess debt problem. And of course, political consensus is an oxymoron in a, in a system that is so dysfunctional uh, as the great American democracy is. So, so let me ask a, an even broader question. Uh, we're, a, a number of people have described the new normal but the counter to that has been the Reinhardt and Rogoff book, Eight, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. Were Reinhardt and Rogoff right that following a huge financial crisis, you have a decade of subpar growth and subpar job creation and poor consumer spending? This isn't a new normal. This is the old post-crisis environment. Yeah, I think I, I, I couldn't have said it better, Barry. Um there's nothing normal about what we're going through right now. Normal means, you know, relax, you know, this is the way it's going to be. And, and it sort of has a connotation of, um, of, of tranquility, acceptance, okay. uh, that, that um, this is the way things are supposed to go. When you nearly blow up the system and you then spend a seemingly inordinate amount of time in repairing the damage that was done when the system was being blown up, that is much more consistent with the, uh, the post-crisis payback uh, of the work of uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff and, and, and others. And, you know, I, I give uh, Carmen, uh, Reinhardt, and Ken Rogoff a huge amount of credit for assembling it, but by no means is this a unique theory uh, that should just be associated uh, with their own work. There are plenty of other people that have looked at this. One of my favorites is uh, actually a Namura economist, uh, Richard Koo. Oh, sure. Who looked at the... Um, the aftermath of the balance sheet recession uh, in Japan, and, and came up with a very similar, but you know, also a very uh, a provocative analytical construct of this debt rejection syndrome that falls in the aftermath uh, of this um, uh, debt-induced uh, crisis that Japan went through. And I think it's very appropriate to analyze the U.S. and other debt-induced um, uh, uh, crises uh, with, with that same type of approach. So some of the um, arguments that I've read about why Japan could not have done a full-on, uh, why they had no choice, is their concept of, of Kiritsu, where all these companies are vertically integrated, and the great example is Mitsubishi. So the bank of Mitsubishi is laden with all this real estate debt, but then there's Mitsubishi Realty on top of that, and then Mitsubishi Heavy Manufacturing, and Mitsubishi Automobiles, and Mitsubishi Air, and all these other companies, uh, including the bank of Mitsubishi stacked, uh, the brokerage firm of Mitsubishi stacked on top of that. Could Japan have done a full-on um, uh, Sweden-type uh, debt reduction and, and move forward, or had, did their structure paint them into a corner? Well, you know, this is a great topic. Uh, actually, I teach a course. Uh, I've been teaching it for five years. We'll teach it again next semester called The Lessons of Japan. 
That's so why you're, I'm asking you're, you're, you're more than welcome to, again, apply to Yale, Barry, and we'll see. You know, I can get you an accelerated um, uh, process to examine your credentials, and you could take the course uh, next I'll, semester. I'll send my nephew to audit the classroom. But, but look, um, Japan had this interlocking Keiretsu system. You're entirely right. But they made serious policy mistakes as well uh, by believing that they could offset the yen appreciation that came out of the Plaza Accord with extraordinary monetary stimulus. And that created the bubbles, um, uh, property and, uh, uh, and equities, that when they burst, then brought this Carrezzo system uh, to its knees. And it was not until the late 1990s when they first started to recapitalize the banks and the Japanese corporations that were caught up in this web that the system began to stabilize. And they've had a lot of problems since then as well. But the structure that they used, which is very successful in driving economic growth post-World uh, War II, 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, um, became you know, a serious part of the problem. And, and that's um, certainly a, a lesson they ultimately had to face. So let's talk a little bit about Abenomics and what's going on in Japan today. The, the U.S. has officially ended its policy of ZERP. QE is winding down. Meanwhile, in Japan, they're a couple of years uh, out of phase with us, and they've ramped up their QE, and they continue to have a zero interest rate policy. What, what do you think is going to happen uh, in Japan with their economy and their monetary policy? Well, just one slight correction. You say U U.S. QE is winding down. I mean, we're not the Fed is not shrinking its balance sheet. It's moved the federal funds rate above zero by you know a measly 25 basis points, but the balance sheet, uh, um, uh, the size of the assets are still four and a half trillion and unlikely. But isn't that gonna naturally run down? I think it's a seven year maturity duration yeah, I, average. I'll believe it when I see it. All right, so I, I'm assuming when they say we're just gonna let this run off, that that they're telling the truth. You think they're going to continue I, buying I'm, bonds? I, I'm suspicious. I, mm. I, I'm very suspicious. So let's. But anyway, your question was about um, Japan. Uh, J Japan. Uh, Abenomics has three arrows. Recently, he's added a few more arrows because the first three weren't apparently strong enough or sharp enough. And um, but but the third arrow is the one that is ultimately going to hold the key to Japan, and that's the structural reform required to boost productivity. Mm -hmm. Japan has an aging population, and it's not just getting older, it's now shrinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when your population, your working age population shrinks, your, your output is going to go down unless you can compensate um, for that with higher productivity. You need the structural reforms uh, to do that. And, you know, the, there's a whole agenda of structural issues, especially in the labor market, the immigration policies, uh, that have not yet been dealt with because it's politically difficult uh, to do in this still LDP, one-party dominated system. And um, that puts more onus on the fiscal and monetary uh, arrows, the first two arrows, uh, to offset the uh, inability to really deliver on the structural reform front. So I take it you're not especially bullish on Japan going forward. I think in, in, until or unless Japan really addresses this productivity issue, and by the way, productivity is now weak um, for most countries in the world, including our own in the mm -hmm. United States, um, that you can't uh, offset that through financial engineering sparked by you know, quantitative easing uh, or, or, or zero interest rates. That's such an important lesson, and it's one that, again, we, we just don't have the discipline uh, or the political 
stamina to 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 address. We like to think of the Japan, Japanese as being long-term strategic thinkers, but by um, jumping on the QE bandwagon and, uh, and 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 really trying to do much more in terms of QE than than, than even we did, you know that tells me that um, uh, they're they're even betting more on these untested, unconventional policies uh, than um, the U.S. did. So in terms of structural reform, they need to increase their birth rate, perhaps bring in some young migrant workers who can who can fill their factories. Is that actually going to happen? Well, you know, uh, uh, longstanding uh, assessment of the, the cultural um, uh, characteristics of a relatively closed Japanese society would argue uh, against that. Okay. And so, you know, that, that, that is a disconcerting uh, conclusion. But uh, again, when you're when your working age population is shrinking, you either need more workers, i.e., you know, um, more more women, more younger people, or foreign workers, uh, or you need to squeeze more out of the current workforce uh, through productivity. When you rule those options out, uh, you know, the uh, the implications become relatively dire. The 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 game is over before you begin under those circumstances. Makes it really hard. So let's talk about productivity a little bit. We, one of the things that we noticed in the 90s and, and 2000s is that all these fantastic productivity gains that we were all experiencing in our day-to-day life, thanks primarily to technology and telecommunications and software, weren't really showing up in the data. In fact, the joke was, you know, productivity gains are everywhere except the data. Uh, how much of the productivity issue is a measurement problem, and how much of this is really a function that we're as productive as we're gonna be and it's not gonna get any better? Look, it's a great issue, and actually I'm proud to say that was one of the issues that I really was involved in and as a Wall Street economist. Um, there, there are very few, you know, in, in Wall Street, you know, the economics profession was always looking at the next Fed move, the next tick in the market, so there was very little appreciation for these deeper themes, but I, I worked continuously uh, on this theme um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the productivity mystique, um, uh, as we shifted more into the services-based knowledge economy, uh, became a really I- important issue. And eventually, uh, we did uh, move into a period uh, where the gains picked up, but now they seem to have stalled out. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, um, uh, was that period from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, was that just an aberration? Did we just move from one technology platform to another? We're now at this new platform, and we're finding it just as hard to deliver on the productivity front going forward as we did um, you know, in the two decades uh, before that. You mentioned measurement problems. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a big measurement problem that I continue to worry about, and that is not that we're uh, understating output, uh, but um, that we're really um, uh, understating uh, labor input. Courtesy of your- Explain that. In, All right, well, think, think about it. You know, you have a cell phone or a Blackberry or whatever you have, a laptop. Right. And so, you know, you're, you're probably online- 24-7. Maybe not 24-7, because you look like you're well-rested, maybe 23-7, okay? <laughs> but, but you're working, you're, you're basically available uh, all day long. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, when they report your workday, they're telling um, uh, you know the, the, the productivity 
uh, calculus that you're working probably about 40 hours, maybe 35 hours uh, a week. And that's certainly true of financial services, an industry that I know a lot about. Uh, and nothing can be further from the truth. And what that says is by understating work time, you're overstating the amount of output per understated work time, and you're getting credit for being more productive when in fact all you're doing is working longer. Productivity, Barry, is not about working longer. It's about generating more output per unit of work time. And I, I, I've done a lot of work on this, and I've looked mm -hmm. at some of the data that go into it, and I think that's a big unanswered question in this 24-7 technology-laden uh, era that we're in. So, so are we not as productive as we think, or are we just working so much more? The United States is notorious for having amongst the, the longest work week, and that's just what's reported. Are we just working more hours, and, and it looks like an increase in productivity, where it's really just more labor, less leisure time. Yeah, I think that's that's what we're doing. I think we are definitely working longer, uh, and our productivity, uh, as a result, is is being overstated, not understated. So let's talk a little bit about commodities, which we really haven't discussed, um, and that naturally leads to a conversation about the dollar. When when we look at the collapse of commodity prices, oil is cut in half, iron ore, steel, uh, all the manufacturing, copper to say the least, uh, all seem to be under pressure. How much of this is attributed to the strong dollar and how much of this is attributed to falling global demand? Well, you know, the, the dollar obviously is um, uh, a part of that, but I think, you know, the dollar may be a symptom rather than a real cause here. Um, I, I look at this commodity cycle, the super cycle on the upside and the collapse on the downside as something that is largely made in China. Really? China uh, has, has, has just ended a 30-year period of the most spectacular uh, growth that a, a large developing economy has ever uh, experienced. This was a manufacturing-led, commodity-intensive growth binge. China's uh, you know, it's, it's uh, primary fuel source is coal, mm -hmm. but um, its demand for oil accounted for 40% of the total growth in global oil wow. demand over the last 10 years. It, it's a share of base metals. China's the most metal-intensive uh, economy in, in, in the world. And China is moving right now, transitioning, not just to slower GDP growth, but to commodity light services growth. Mm -hmm. So in making the move from commodity-intensive manufacturing to commodity-like services and taking the GDP down from 10 to pick your number, 6, six or 7, right. um, it's a double whammy because the, the, the production side, the supply side of commodity markets is in denial uh, over the shortfall of Chinese demand and the shift to um, uh, commodity-like services. And I think that's a huge factor that's really unappreciated. The the cliche I've heard repeatedly, and I've never been able to verify the data, is that in the past three years, or, or in a three-year period that ended not too long ago, China consumed more cement than the United States did last century. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if that's exactly right, but, but, but China's share of the global cement market uh, is about 50% that, right now. That, that's extraordinary. And, and they've got you know, just years, decades to go in terms of cement-intensive infrastructure construction to um, provide the shelter and the roads and the bridges and the facilities required of the uh, prospective urbanization 
that is still out there. So let's talk a little bit about emerging markets in general, but you just said something that I, I have to follow up on. Uh, they seem to make infrastructure, build, and maintenance a huge priority. We don't really seem to do that here anymore. <laughs> you, you notice. Have you been on the FDR uh, recently? I, I have been screaming about this for a decade. I, I personally believe that anytime someone gets a flat tire or breaks an axle, the bill should go to Grover Norquist. But that's just my personal bias. It, are we ever going to get on the same page as... You know, we invented the idea of an interstate highway system, mobile phones, the internet. How is it that we've developed these phenomenal economic platforms for growth in the United States and then kind of let them fall into a, a, a period of, of underinvestment, shall we say? Look, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an economist. You know, I actually have a Ph.D. in, in economics. Um, and uh, one of the things you're taught, you know, way back even when I studied it is if you don't save, you can't invest. Mm -hmm. uh, our national savings rate, which is the, the sum total of savings of our businesses, our households, and the government sector, which is always in deficit, uh, if you strip out the depreciation uh, uh, that needs to be funded through our gross savings mm -hmm. to replace our worn-out capital stock, there basically isn't any barrier. Zero. We're at zero. Well, no, we're at about 3%, which okay. is, you know, well below our long-term average, which is closer to uh, 8 and so when you don't save, where do you get the wherewithal to invest in the infrastructure um, and even invest in human capital, let alone the new capacity we will need to compete uh, in this uh, globalized world? And no one focuses on the saving imperatives of the United States. But I would write about it from my Wall Street days or even in my Yale days, and I get attacked, you know, in um, you know by illustrious. Um, uh, uh, a luminary, some who have Nobel Prizes, who even have beards, who write for the New York Times. And they say, <laughs> don't listen to him. We should never save. You know, saving is um, what got us into trouble uh, in the 1930s. And I beg to differ. I think if a nation that doesn't save will uh, ultimately squander the seed corn of economic growth. Maybe we don't need to boost our savings rate immediately and sharply, but we need to think about a long-term strategy of having the wherewithal to fund what we need uh, for our competitive survival. So let's talk a little bit about emerging markets. And, and by the way, those of you listening should just rewind this conversation three minutes and listen to that again, because that was an absolutely um, uh, brilliant, insightful exposition on, on what America is currently doing wrong and, and why we have found ourselves in a competitive disadvantage but let's change gears and go to emerging markets. Well, we have a tendency to lump EM into one group. You remember very famously, uh, Goldman Sachs came out with the BRIC uh, acronym, but really- I heard they just closed the BRIC yeah, fund, by the done. way. It didn't All do too over, well, right? didn't do well. But stop and think about uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China. You couldn't pick four more disparate and different entities that don't have a whole lot in, in common. Do we make a mistake lumping all the emerging markets into one basket? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with all due respect for Goldman Sachs, and I have great respect for them as a very powerful financial institution, but BRICS was hype. It was mm -hmm. marketing. You know, they, they came up with a clever acronym at a time when, you know, four large emerging economies were uh, seemingly on the cusp of a major breakthrough. If you pick apart the BRICS, the only real growth that came, of course, was in the, the C. Uh, China, the the B, the R, uh, and the I were uh, pathetic in terms of really delivering uh, a dynamic economic growth. 
we we do lump them uh, all, all all together. You know, a couple of the uh, BRICS were commodity uh, producers. A couple of them, uh, like uh, China and India, uh, were commodity uh, consumers. Uh, they're at different points in their development journey. They have different political systems. They have different needs, different strategies. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe this shakeout in EM that's been going on for several years is about moving away from this single-minded uh, uh, sort of homogenization uh, of emerging markets and getting back to the fundamentals of really being able to understand individual economies and companies, whether they're in emerging markets or developed markets, uh, and what their opportunities are. So let me let me change stuff up on you. Before I get to my, my favorite questions I ask all my guests, I have to bring something up that David Rosenberg, who was essentially your counterpart at Morgan Stanley, who uh, is now uh, back up in Canada, said something. Yeah, he's other- a political refugee. I know David. <laughs> a lot of respect for him. Though. David had said one of the, the most profound insights he developed as an economist was when he moved from the sell side where you're making forecasts and letting the chips fall where they may to the buy side where the questions that come from clients and fund managers are well how much conviction do you have in that forecast and if you're wrong what's your plan b and that was something that never came up uh from the sell side uh, have you ever had a similar perspective looking at the different roles Economist yeah, I think I think that's a fair point, but but you know, I I was amazed. I mean, I maybe I just David had a more sheltered life when he was toiling <laughs> at Maryland. Should I do? But when I first started going out on the road, Morgan Stanley in the 1980s, I would go into these conference rooms of these legendary investors, and uh, you know, I I'd give them my baseline case, and one guy actually um, had a sign in the middle of his conference room where we listened to sell side presentations. Get to your point within five minutes. If you don't, this meeting is over. So within five minutes, I had to lay out my base case. And then I, you know, I would stop and he and others would say, okay, you know, good case. How could you be wrong? And, and when I first heard that question, I go like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I can't be wrong. You know, I, I came from the Fed. And then I realized, you know, that's exactly what, you know, they, they wanted to test. They want to test your conviction. And so I got that, um, uh, that, that pressure repeatedly. Uh, in my sell side years uh, on uh, uh, Wall Street, and I think it's a great question. You've got you've you've got to you know own both sides of the debate. In fact, the most successful course that I teach at Yale right now is called the Macro Debate, mm-hmm. where I co-teach it with a you know a theoretical uh, economist from the Yale uh, Econ Department who has never been in the real world. His name? Uh, Alex Savinsky. He's Russian. He's brilliant. He's a great friend of mine, but he's the theorist. I'm the market practitioner. And we debate everything. And and when I first hit him with this idea, you know, we had a huge fight in one of the Yale um, uh, sort of uh, college dining rooms because I challenged him on the other side of his one of his theoretical models. And he was on, uh, uh, just not used to being challenged and, and thinking about the other side of the debate. What if you're wrong? And Correct. so, you know, we had this big fight. A lot of students thought that, you know, it was cool to see this, you know, this new guy fighting with one of their th- theoretical giants. And so we turned it into a course, and the university huh. supported, um, and we've taught this course um, now for five years, and it is, it's possibly the highest-ranked undergraduate econ course at Yale because we've taught the students that not you, you don't want to just um, go out with a stylized, theoretically-driven view of macro. You've got to debate both sides of these burning issues. 
And we do that in the classroom uh, and we give them a lot of assignments and exams uh, to test them and their ability and the tools they develop to understand this. And so I think that um, uh, is, 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 has got to be an important uh, feature of the Wall Street debate as well. It's got a flavor of moot court where you have to be able to argue both sides of the case because you really can't understand something unless you know your your counterparty's strengths and your own weaknesses. Yeah, and and then you have to be you have to have enough humility to know that you know you may have a brilliant idea or insight, but you know many times you're you're just gonna you know fall on your face and be proven dead wrong. If you don't have the framework and the knowledge of what's on the other side of it, you don't know how to pick yourself back up and 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 go back as a credible analyst, economist, or strategist again. So so let's go back to your early days uh, at both the Fed and Brookings and Morgan Stanley. Who were some of your early mentors? Well, um, you know that's that's a good question. As I look back on uh, you know mentorship, I mean I certainly when I was at the Fed. Um, I uh, was 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 intimidated and ultimately uh, influenced by by two major figures. Um, one, Arthur Burns. Uh, he course. was the chairman of the Fed uh, in the 1970s, and um, you know, God rest his soul, did a terrible job as a central banker and really failed to appreciate uh, the role that monetary policy could play in fostering uh, high inflation. So. I learned a lot from that experience, which I subsequently would refer to as the politicization uh, of, of the Fed. And I think there's some of that that is very much present, um, uh, you know, in the Greenspan uh, and, and Bernanke eras, and hopefully will be dealt with effectively by uh, uh, Janet Yellen, who I have enormous respect for. Um, I also learned a lot from, from Paul Volcker, who basically came in and said, Here's why Arthur Burns is wrong, and here's what it's going to take to wring inflation out of the system. They were both very formative in my early experience. When I went into Wall Street, if I look back on um, you know all the individuals that influenced me the most, um, I'd have to say it was it was um, my my dear and sadly departed friend uh, Barton Biggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barton. Um, was not only, a, I think, a, a great investor, but he, he was able to marry uh, his macro insights with his views on markets. And, he, and and we worked closely together, and he was tough. Um, you know, he was a gentle soul in many respects, but he was also intellectually rigorous and tough and always demanding that when I came out with some crazy theory on productivity or debt or China or whatever it was, that... <clears throat> I market to market, try to understand what the market was discounting with respect to my trends, and then to be strong or weak in emphasizing my trend, not on the basis of my, quote, brilliant, unquote, analysis, but on the basis of how far the market was willing to go in believing or disbelieving. And so he connected me as a macro thinker to the the market's discounting mechanism. And that's not something that you learn uh, in a PhD program in uh, in grad school, it's something you learn really by by living and breathing the markets. And and Barton was absolutely superb at that. You've you've been in the financial industry more or less for thirty almost forty years. What has changed for the better and for the worse since you began? Well, you know, we started out this conversation by by saying I, I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. You know, it was the golden age 
of um, uh, Wall Street research, especially at Morgan Stanley, we we could be very entrepreneurial in the way we developed uh, research products. Uh, we really had a clean slate. And, you know, 35, 40 years later, uh, there's a lot of people out there competing uh, for um, uh, sort of airspace and time and you know, you have these uh, internet-enabled distribution systems that sure. push research out 24-7 to everybody. Uh, I think the marketplace uh, for ideas has become much more commoditized. Mm -hmm. And um, the perspective um, has shortened. Uh, there's, you know, like I look at what happened, um, you know, in the markets this week. I mean, you know, the only issue people cared about was whether the Fed was going to finally end the zero interest rate regime and move by 25 basis points. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, it's a very myopic view of mm -hmm. the world. I think there's very little that's done right now in, in developing these deeper thematic insights that's really going to guide, shape, and reshape um, the investment climate, the economic climate, uh, and the policy regime over longer periods of time. So I think... Um, you know, we were lucky to be able to focus on some of these long-term themes and debate them sometimes seemingly endlessly. <laughs> uh, and I think the, the, the sell side is now drawn into a much more short-term um, uh, time horizon that uh, moves away from these um, broader themes. Uh, I imagine Barton Biggs would have looked at this week and said, Fed fund futures are at an 80% probability of, of a quarter point increase, he would have waved it off and said, this is already in the price. Let's talk about what's going to happen in the future. I think that's absolutely right. Um, uh, you know, once <laughs> Barton's greatest um, gift, I think, was this uncanny sense of knowing when the market was discounting a macro trend. And as soon as that, uh, he, he concluded that the trend was in the market, he wanted to move on to something else. Makes makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and... Um, so he and, and, and Byron, to his credit, understood that through his um, contrarian 10 surprises approach. He also felt, um, uh, I think, heavily influenced by Barton, although Byron would, would never want to admit that publicly, uh, <laughs> that it was really important to understand what was in the market before you made um, uh, an out of consensus bet for the future. So Byron was a guest here a couple of months ago. What I what I really and he still travels extensively, which is amazing. What I loved, I'm not a big fan of forecasts, but I, I, I find his 10 surprises to be brilliant because instead of forecasting what's going to happen and being wrong, the forecast attempt is, hey, here are some unexpected surprises. And it was just a brilliant twist on the usual. Well, but uh, it's the same, I, you know, it's the same concept. And I, I agree. You know, I, I like I used to, I, I spent 21 years with Byron. We traveled the world together. We were, you know, I was as close with him as I uh, was with you know my own siblings, or I spent more time with him, and he spent more time with me than we did with our own spouses. Um, and so I I would you know be shoulder to shoulder with him as he would articulate uh, his ten surprises, and I would you know lay out some you know macro views that were uh, either consistent or inconsistent with that. Sometimes we agreed, sometimes we didn't. Uh, we debated a lot, we challenged each other a lot, but he his focus again was. In, in maintaining the view that I make big money as an investor when I bet against something that is not in the market rather right. than when I bet on something that's in the market. So this goes back to the Barton Biggs 
uh, insight that you need to really focus most of all on what the market is discounting and to be able to identify those anomalies, those trends, those opportunities, those risks that are not in the price. And when you can do that, uh, you really add value to the thought process that guides and shapes markets prospectively rather than looking back through that rear view mirror. So our last two questions, um, you work with a lot of millennials, a lot of students. What sort of advice would you give a student of yours who comes to you and says, I'm thinking about going into finance as a career? I get a lot of those students uh, all the time. And, you know, despite the post-crisis shakeout on Wall Street, um, I'm still shocked about a large number of students who want to go down uh, that road. And I always tell them, look, try it out for a few years. You know, you're going to get, if you're an undergrad, go to work for a Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, or whatever for a few years. And then after two to three years, take stock. Uh, you've, you, you've, you've been on a trading desk, you've been an analyst. Does this give you the satisfaction you want going forward? And then take a pause, take a break, do something else after two to three years, after you've done your first uh, stint, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, in Wall Street. And that something else could be going back to grad school or getting a job, you know, in an industry that actually makes things as opposed to promotes uh, ideas. And then compare those next two to three years with your first two to three years, and you'll have a better judgment as to what you want to do in, in, in the future. But don't just monolithically get your degree from a, a, a great school like Yale, where I teach, um, and then just assume that you figured out that Wall Street or finance is your future. It still pays very well. There's great opportunity there. But there's more, as millennials will tell you, and I actually study millennials a lot in my coursework, um, millennials are very nonconforming. They want something else out of life than what you and I did when we were first starting out. And so uh, life satisfaction is really important to them, and they, they need to challenge those aspirations with the actual experiences that they're getting rather than what something that looks good on paper. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were beginning? <laughs> I think um, the most important thing is, is, is going back to this discipline of having an enormous respect for the markets to anticipate uh, these seemingly brilliant macroeconomic insights that I and others can come up with. And uh, connecting markets uh, to the discernment, uh, the understanding of, of macro trends, that's a big challenge. A lot of investors, I remember when I first started out in the business, um, I met this guy at, at Fidelity. Uh, I had no idea who he was. Uh, I was so green. Uh, his name was Peter Lynch. <laughs> I knew you were going to hear that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was very polite. You know, I remember someone gave me a list of people to call. So I call, you know, I called him up and I, I introduced myself. And he asked me, he said, you know, what do, what do I do? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm recently on Wall Street. I came from the Federal Reserve. I forecast the economy. He says, so you do economics. And I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, do me a favor. He says, um, I really enjoyed talking again, but don't ever call me again because <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have any use for uh, economists. He was very polite. Uh, and then he, he wrote about this in one of his books. Oh, really? Uh, about, he didn't. Uh, Some young kid who called him. Unfortunately, he didn't mention me by name, but he said, you know, if you're, he has a line with something, you know, if you're spending 10 minutes a year thinking about economics, 
you've wasted nine of them. Uh, and I, I took personal exception to that as a young kid. And it's been my um, goal ever since, I'm not, no longer a young kid, to um, make, make this connection between markets uh, and macro. Because I think if you get that connection right, and it's rare, uh, the macro thinker that can do it, you can really add value to the process. And I, I wish I understood that better uh, 35, 40 years ago uh, than I did today. It takes a long time uh, to, to um, uh, understand and accept that. Stephen Roach, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see the other 70 plus uh, interviews we've done. Uh, feel free to check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank my producer, Charlie Vollmer, and my head of research, um, Michael Batnick. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.